Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. This week, who funds you? The dirty world of dark money. Peter Gagan, author of Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics, joins us to talk about how money, vested interests and digital skullduggery have utterly eroded trust in democracy, both here in Britain and in America, and what must be done about it. Plus, homes under the Conservative hammer. What will the government's proposed changes to the UK's planning system mean for your town? Is it going to solve Britain's housing crisis, or are we giving the green light to corruption and the creation of a so-called generation of slums? And after the horrific events last week in Lebanon, what does the unrest mean for the Middle East? All this and more in today's bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Before we take a look at the holiday brochures and organise our quarantine plans, let's meet today's panel. First up, we have broadcaster, Romaniac's regular and author of the newly released book, Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse, Nina Schick. Hiya, Nina. How are you doing? Good. Uh, enjoying the heat. Oh, God. Well, at least somebody is. Um, it's been a big weekend for taking back control uh, with Pretty Patel recruiting a clandestine channel threat commander whatever that is, and asking for the cooperation of France to help stop migrant boats. Um, is she about to find out that leaving the EU actually means more refugees will land on our shores and it's going to be more difficult to deal with this? Oh, my God. So obviously the whole migrant issue was so such a driving force for the Brexit vote. But, of course, the whole time that was happening, we all knew that the UK had an opt-out out of EU uh, asylum policy and that any migrants making their way to the shores of the United Kingdom, well, you, you need um, France and other European countries to cooperate in order to try to bring this problem, quote unquote, to hand. So yes, she is about to find out that taking back control is nothing like she imagined it to be in 2016. Yeah, and the whole thing was kind of, was sort of sparked up by Nigel Farage complaining about a mass invasion of eight people in a dinghy. I mean, are we are we seeing uh, an attempt to kind of relight the fire under this thing? You know, is it is it is it a real issue, or is it simply something to fill the uh, the summer pages? The the conversation about immigration and migration is definitely a real issue, one that we need to talk about. But what Farage is doing is drumming up hysteria. He's uh, doing he's been doing that for years, and he is fanning the flames, knowing full well that this kind of fear mongering and hysteria building, and not a sensible uh, discussion about migration is something well that serves his political interests and we've seen that play out so fantastically well with vis-a-vis brexit and similar conversations in the united states yeah it's not going to go away this one is it they're not going to let it also joining us is former diplomat and foreign and commonwealth office mover and shaker arthur snell hello arthur how you doing I'm great, thanks. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, on your beat, Foreign Desk, uh, we saw genuinely alarming scenes in Belarus at the weekend following the uh, the presidential election. Um, the uh, ongoing soft revolution is being described as the last unfinished business of 1989, is it? Well, I mean, that's a legitimate description. I mean, 
in some respects, Belarus is a country that's been stuck in a time warp and sort of exists as if the Soviet Union never came to an end. I mean, it in some respects makes makes sort of Russia look like an open society. But it's a very fast-moving situation. I mean, the latest that I've seen is that the opposition candidate has fled to Lithuania and, according to some reports, has now released a video calling for people to accept the result, which suggests that she's come under huge pressure. Maybe they've, you know, grabbed members of her family. Who knows what's happening? But it's, yeah, it's very troubling. Also, the people in Belarus have had a lot of support from uh, from abroad. Can can European governments do anything to affect what's happening? Because, you know, the policy so far seems to have been turn a blind eye. Just in the last sort of 24 hours, I think we're seeing uh, a sort of ratcheting up of the pressure. So Germany's foreign minister um, tweeted that we need to discuss in the EU whether the decision to lift sanctions is still appropriate. Um and, you know, Berlin has expressed strong doubts about the election results. has to be said that here in London, it's there hasn't been so much, um, you know, so, so much sort of coming out from the Foreign Office or others in terms of sort of a response to it. So I don't think Europe has really figured out where it wants to go on this. And I suppose, you know, it's it might be a question of picking your battles. I mean, it looks pretty obvious that it's a stolen election. The question is, is the EU ready to go head to head with Belarus and therefore by extension with Russia on this particular issue? This week's special guest is a writer, journalist, investigations editor at the award winning news website Open Democracy and author of the new book Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics. Welcome to the bunker, Peter Gagan. Thanks for very much for having me on, guys. Uh, yeah, we're absolutely delighted. Like your book, which we're going to talk about in detail in a minute. I mean, this is a, an investigative journalism undertaking of great magnitude. You've been digging through the past five years and more of uh, of this, this this stuff, but and yet now it suddenly feels that cronyism and dark money have become the the staple diet of our of, of our daily news. Are we going to have to get used to this now that uh, we have a, a, a largely unstoppable conservative government in power? Is this politics now? Yes. Well, I I must say. Thank you very much to Boris Johnson. You know, I know he pretended to want to squash the Russia report, but, you know, really he got enough noise in the Russia report to come out just about 10 days before my book did, which I thought was really, really, you know, if I couldn't have asked for better timing, really, that my publisher was totally delighted. Um, but no, joking aside, you know, we had the Russia report which said our democracy, you know, is, is, is ripe for hostile interference, not just from Russia, but from lots of different actors. We had the dissolution honours list, which really almost felt like trolling, you know, giving your own brother a period, Yevgeny Lebedev, um, the, the owner of the, the Independent Evening Standard and the, the son of a former KGB officer. You know, there's party donors, there's, you know, there's, that really, I think, kind of kind of showed exactly the kind of thing that, that I was writing about, I've been writing about. So, you know, it does feel a little bit like we're in a, an era in which corruption and conflicts of interest to be polite are going are kind of running rampant through this government so it does look like we're going to see more of this so you know maybe maybe this is the first installment rather than the final word The growth of social media has put traditional democracies in crisis with unaccountable and untraceable flows of money pouring into the internet to damage our politics. Politicians can lie at will, make incredible claims that can be shared at the click of a button with millions of people on social media. And we've seen it here in the UK with Brexit, in the United States with the election of Donald Trump and across the world. So what is the backstory to all this digital swindling and what can we do about it? Peter Gagan, author of Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics might be able to give us some answers. 
Peter, where did, where did you begin with this? What was the what was the genesis of, of, of this work? Well, I didn't, I must say, I didn't expect to spend three years plus researching a book about unaccountable money and lobbying and, and the internet and data in British politics, especially not where this book started. Um, it really started, a, like a lot, of, a lot of other things, just before the Brexit referendum. So it was two days before the Brexit vote, and I was a journalist, I was working for the Irish Times, and I was doing the thing that lots of journalists do before a big event, a big political event. I was taking the temperature of somewhere outside of the city. And I was actually in the town of Sunderland, or actually technically the city of Sunderland, uh, to anyone listening in Sunderland, uh, in the northeast of England. Uh, and it was 48 hours before the vote, and I was talking to lots of people about Brexit, about the European Union, about how they were going to vote. And just as I was leaving Sunderland, I was standing on a train station, a small uh, kind of suburban station called Seaburn, and I noticed... Um, copy of the Metro, the free newspaper, and it had a big advert in the front of it that said, vote, leave, take back control. And you know, that's a slogan we've, we've come to know very well, uh, especially in some ways since the referendum. And I you know, kind of had a look at it and I was like, yeah, just, and I, I was just holding the paper in my hand, looking at it really. And on the back, I noticed that it didn't have the imprint of vote, leave, the official leave campaign. It had the logo of the Democratic Unionist Party and a little messages saying, this advert was paid for on behalf of the DUP. And I thought, that's quite curious. Why is a DUP advertising in Sunderland? And I'd worked in Belfast before in my career. And I was aware that political donations in Northern Ireland were secret under a little loophole from the Troubles because there was kind of a sense in which political donors needed to be protected because, you know, there was a lot of violence. You could be shot. Um, And I was aware that that still existed, actually. The people who campaigned to get a change, but it, it was still on the books. And I thought to myself, that's very curious. I wonder what's happened with this. But... There was a, a vote coming up in 48 hours. I didn't have time to go spending lots of time digging into it. I had copy to write for the next ed- day's edition of the paper. So I put the, the Metro in my bag and slightly forgot all about it. And then in the weeks and months that followed, I did find myself coming back to that experience, partly because Sunderland became a kind of, you know, er place for Brexit. You know, the first big result on the night, the first big Brexit vote. There were so many news packages from Sunderland. I kind of kept thinking, well, what that advert I saw about the DUP? And I started like, looking around, seeing what else I could find about what had happened. And in early 2017, Adam Ramsey uh, was from Open Democracy, he's a journalist of Open Democracy, gave me a call. He said, I'm interested in the DUP's Brexit spending because Adam had been in Edinburgh a couple of days before the referendum. And he'd noticed that there was canvassers out, vote leave canvassers, with those big kind of um, vote leave red uh, red fronted placards and posters, and they had the exact same message as the advert I'd seen. It said "paid for by the Democratic Unionist Party." So Adam and I started doing a bit of investigation, doing some digging, putting the story together, and we were able to find out that initially that the DUP had spent at least a quarter of a million pounds, which, to be put in the context of Northern Irish politics, is a huge sum of money. The DUP in the 2016 Northern Ireland elections for the Stormont Devolved Assembly, which was about six weeks before the Brexit referendum, spent £50,000 to top the poll. So a quarter of a million pounds is a lot of money. But actually, as we kept on digging, we were able to discover that they'd spent £435,000. And that money hadn't just, uh, you know, that money had come to the DUP through a group called the Constitutional Research Council, which sounds really grand, sounds like some sort of great uh, August institution that might have an office in Pall Mall in London. But actually, it's what's called an unincorporated association in British election law, which basically means it doesn't have any legal structure at all. It doesn't have to file accounts, doesn't have to publish members, doesn't have to put any details about itself, doesn't have to have a website. 
And the only person who's involved with this uh, Constitution Research Council publicly is a guy called Richard Cook, who had stood for the Conservative Party numerous times in Glasgow. He's a businessman who lives in a place called East Renfrewshire, just outside Glasgow. Serial unsuccessful Tory candidate. And now he popped up as the man behind almost half a million pounds to the DUP. And that was kind of where the story, yeah, sorry, that was where the story kind of went from there. I'm from sort of tugging at the, uh, you know, Tug it at the one thread on the cardigan here. So much stuff has unraveled, everything from Vote Leave to Cambridge Analytica out to the Trump campaign. And one of the things that emerges from the book is that much of this stuff, if not the vast majority of this stuff, is not actually illegal. It's just that the law is lagging badly behind technology. It's lagging badly behind the ownership of transnational organizations like, like Facebook and Twitter, which are they're black boxes. They're 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 impenetrable. I mean, do, do you think that's the case? That that that, that well, this is really a story about how the law can't keep up with technology. Very much so, really. Yeah, because you know, I, I after doing the big story about the DUP, I, I asked that question. I was like, well, how does money and influence and lobbying and all these things in British politics actually work? You know, how does money change our politics? And I started invest. I did a series of investigations. Aaron Banks, Boat Leave went out into looking at think tanks, looked across, across the world, literally, at how money was flowing from America into European politics, fueling the rise of the far right. But time and again, what I found wasn't, wasn't illegal. Like the DUP donation, there's nothing illegal about it. And actually, in actual fact, if somebody in Northern Ireland um, was, say, connected to the Electoral Commission or had details of that donation and was to pass those details on to me because the donation is secret, they could face up to six months in prison. But the maximum sentence for breaking electoral law, the maximum kind of penalty that the Electoral Commission, the election regulator in Britain can levy, is £20,000. And it can't send you to prison, which I found really, really remarkable. And that's, you know, if you think about it in that context, then breaking the law, say like Fortley broke electoral law, got fined the maximum fine by the Electoral Commission. What's £20,000 to Dominic Cummings, Matthew Elliott, and all the rest of them? That's money you could raise with a single phone call. You know, it's, it really is, it's the cost of doing business. And not only that, there's so little reputational damage because in many ways, everyone sees it as a cost of doing business. So it's almost factored in, it's factored into political campaigning now. And time and again, I found that the laws that are supposed to govern our politics just don't work. Um, some of them, are, sometimes it's to do with a lack of enforcement. You know, there's constituency spending limits in Britain, which are, are really laughable. The maximum constituency spending limit is often between 12 and 15,000 pounds. Almost nobody believes that most election candidates keep up, keep to that. There, there's really easy ways to hide that. But so some of it is, is systemic and, and, and long running. But also our laws were written for the analog age. They weren't written for the digital age. You know, if you put, if I was an election candidate and I put a leaflet through your door, I have to say who I am and who paid for this. If I put the same ad on the internet, I don't have to say anything. So we've almost, in particular for the internet, it's the Wild West out there. You can go as far as you want. And we really saw, I think, you know, in the run-up to the 2019 general election, where in particular the Tories just went wild on the internet and were able to push things as far as they wanted because there's no comeback. Mm. So how, how beholden is uh, British politics to dark money? Then how influential is this stuff? It's happening, but how decisive is it? It depends. Like, almost you want, it's useful to think about what these terms mean. So, like, dark, by dark money, I'm kind of taking the kind of, which is a very American concept. And that really fundamentally means unaccountable money that goes into the political system. 
So sometimes that can be donations. So, you know, there's, there's definitely some money that goes in. So the Conservative Party rely quite heavily on, on funding clubs that are unincorporated associations to fund uh, campaigning. So I published a big story with Open Democracy with my colleagues, uh, Seth Tevo and Jenna Corduroy, about two months after the British general election of 2019, showing how hundreds of thousands of pounds had gone through these unincorporated associations and been spent by successful conservative candidates in red wall seats, and mainly in northern England. And that money is really anonymous because the funding clubs don't have to declare their donors. So that's one quite obvious way, and, and small amounts of money in British politics can make a big difference. You know, we don't, the Rob, Richard Desmond story about Robert Jenrick about planning applications in, in, in East London, that was kind of pivoting around a £12,000 donation to the Conservative Party. You don't need huge sums of money. It's a point actually that Guthrie Bebb, the former Tory MP, made to me in this, an interview for this book. It's not America. You don't need huge sums of money to make influence. But it's not just political donations. There's other ways in which kind of clandestine and secretive money can go into the political system. One thing I look at in quite a lot of detail in the book is think tanks, this whole world of kind of Tufton Street, of these kind of, kind of pop-up astroturf think tanks, you know, the Taxpayers' Alliance, Institute of Economic Affairs, Policy Exchange. They've often got grand titles. They've often got quite long histories, kind of libertarian kind of like institutes. But actually, they are funded by anonymous money and often take very lines, uh, very, very that chime very closely with corporations. And I kind of try and trace the rise of this kind of Anglosphere, this kind of connection between Britain and American right in the years running up to Brexit, especially through these think tanks. And it's really interesting, Matthew Elliott in 2017, the former head of Vote Leave, gave an interview to the Atlas Network magazine. The Atlas Network is this kind of umbrella for libertarian think tanks around the world. There's about 150 groups part of this Atlas Network organization. And Matthew Elliott said, you know, what Brexit showed is how a small number of individuals in like organizations like ours who are really motivated together can actually completely change the political system. And I think that's really true. I think the power of these small think tanks, you know, it's very easy to underestimate them. You might see them on their television screen, somebody from the IA or whatever else, or policy exchange, but they're very, very effective at putting ideas out into the political spectrum. And kind of one of the arguments I make in the book is that actually if you think about corruption just in a very like, you know, in a very, in a very transactional way, like you give somebody money and they, they change a planning decision for you. That's one form of corruption. But actually, it's almost more effective to buy the idea space. So if you can get the ideas that you want into the political space, through think tanks in particular, writing policy reports, introducing you to politicians, all of which is off the record because they don't qualify as lobbying organizations, so they're not on the lobbying register, that can be an even much more effective way of changing the political landscape. As a taxpayer, I'm still waiting for my voting form for the Taxpayers Alliance. I thought they're supposed to represent me. When do I get to vote? That's that's my that's my major concern. Um, Nina, your own book, Deep Fakes and the Apocalypse, touches on on this stuff. Did you recognise common ground here? Absolutely, because I think um, both of us are talking about this new information ecosystem, which is completely transforming our society and our politics, which is a completely unregulated, ungoverned space, which are creating all these loopholes for exactly what Peter is describing here. It has everything to do with the technology of our age and how our information ecosystem and political systems are being transformed by that. I mean, both your books talk about how um you know, by by effectively hiding ants, by by targeting them so uh, precisely that nobody sees them except the few thousand people who need to see them, you can effectively 
change the nature of truth you, you know can, can we have functioning politics when the truth is an entirely contestable thing and it's tailored to individual micro audiences you can't have a functioning liberal democracy if you have no basis for an objective truth um you know it's a great tool for authoritarian leaders or propagandists who wish to control the narrative so essentially their way of governing forevermore is a kind of information war or the pushing of propaganda but i mean it is a terrible 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 development for liberal democracies where you kind of hope there is an objective reality a fact-based reality which everyone can critically debate and then come hmm. to a reasonable consensus on arthur you've had experience of uh, russian entanglements did we make a mistake when we decided to be intensely relaxed about rich people from around the world birthing themselves in london well i think you know, we certainly made a mistake when we uh, continued to have these kind of very lax controls that Peter's just so brilliantly described. And in a way, the issue is that we have these election laws that are made for a sort of more innocent age. And, and you know, talking about that the worst thing that could happen is a £20,000 fine. And, you know, you've, you've got a system where these unincorporated associations, which are a gift to people who want to funnel dark money into politics. Uh, but they continue. And of course, at the moment, it suits everybody uh, for those things to exist. So I think we, we just, we haven't been realistic about how the world has changed and updated our systems to reflect that. What does the average Russian operative look like now? I mean, they're not a guy in a gabardine mac with a scar and a limp anymore, are they? And a poison umbrella? No, they're not. Well, what they look like is a highly paid professional advisor. There might be a, <laughs> a, a lawyer, a PR expert, you know, they, 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 they come in all, all kinds of shapes and sizes. And, and I think, again, you know, that's one of the real powers, not just of Russia, but it's a good example. They have put so much money into the professional services sector in London. They have a lot of allies. You know, it's not just politicians. A lot of very comfortable upper middle class people's livelihoods depend on, on this economy. And, and so that's partly why it's so influential. Peter, you talked to Steve Bannon uh, for your book, which must have been a lovely experience. He was very complimentary about Dominic Cummings. What, what were your encounters with him like? Yes, because I really wanted, I did want to get a sense of some of the players who were involved in this world. You know, because it's easy to kind of come at this from a certain perspective. You know, I actually, I interviewed like 30 or 40 interviews to this book. I spoke to Steve Bannon, spoke to a number of Tory MPs, Labour MPs. I went to meet the Electoral Commission, talked to our head of regulation. I tried to get a bit of a, I wanted to put a much rounder picture on the kind of thing, I, the kind of world I've been reporting on for a long time. And it was fascinating to talk to Steve Bannon, to get a sense, you know, of, where his worldview was. And I felt as well, like, we hear a lot about Steve Bannon in the context of Donald Trump, but, like, we never, he hasn't talked that much about British politics, his views on British politics, his views on things like Brexit, his experience in the run-up to Brexit, like, what his involvement was, and, and things like that. So I kind of wanted to get that sense from him. You know, and unsurprisingly, he's big into Brexit. You know, the big problem so far has been, it's a very Dominic Cummings analysis of what's wrong with Britain, to be honest. It's the civil service and the Ramoners. You know, that's, that's what's held them back, and Theresa May wasn't a real, wasn't a real proper Brexiteer. And actually, he told me a, a kind of quite hilarious story about when Theresa May went to meet Donald Trump in February of 2017, just after Donald Trump had you know, had his inauguration in the White House, and Theresa May went to meet him. And uh, unbeknownst to all people, I think Liam Fox was there too, the Trade Secretary, and basically, you know, 
as Bannon's, Bannon's, ta- Bannon's taking on it or Bannon's kind of account of it is that Ryan's previous, who's the chief of staff for Trump at the time, said to you know, uh, Liam Fox and Theresa May, like, look, let's get down, we'll do a deal in 90 days. We can, you know, let's, let's just get to it. And that, uh, you know, that Liam Fox just kind of mumbled and said he'd get back to them. And that also that Donald Trump was giving Theresa May uh, negotiating tips. And unsurprisingly, Steve Bannon wasn't, wasn't a fan of Theresa May and uh, Liam Fox. But one of the most interesting things I think he said to me was like, you know, we ended up talking a lot about things we've been chatting about earlier, about social media and about tech companies. And I said to him, you know, how important was, has kind of that revolution been? And he said, without that, it wouldn't be possible. Without that, you, someone like Bolsonaro couldn't have become the president of Brazil. You know, Matteo Salvini, who talks about, who actually dedicated his league's record, uh, record result to came second in the Italian election in 2019, kind of dedicated that to, to Facebook. And, you know, this has really changed, it's totally changed the world in which politics is done. And for someone like Steve Bannon, I think it's given opportunities to reshape politics really quickly in ways that, you know, I think we've all struggled to really keep pace with. And certainly, you know, our laws and, and, and our way of thinking about politics has, hasn't been able to keep pace with. So, um, Peter, you, in your book, you describe how British politics has become much more like American politics, where policy is increasingly um, decided by a small group of donors. But what should the concerned listener or somebody who's alarmed by this trend, what are kind of the concrete steps that need to be taken to address this problem of opaque funding in politics? Well, I think in sometimes in Britain, because we look to America so much, probably because we're the same, we're English speaking, and I'm Irish, as you can tell from my voice, and we do the same. We look, unlike Britain, we look to Britain on one side and America on the other. And we kind of always look at our politics in the way in, compared to America, which I don't think is always helpful because we're very different histories. And we look at America and say, oh, look, America's got loads of money in its politics and actually it's got way more money than we have in our politics. So A, we're not so bad, which I think is actually completely misread the situation. That actually mm. in Britain, small amounts of money is actually even more important because there's less of it about. So it can be even more influential than in America. But also we think that private money running politics is the way it always is. That's not the case in lots and lots of democracies. You know, if you look to France across the channel, the maximum donation in France is 7,500 euros. The maximum donation in Britain is whatever you want to give it, whatever you want to give. For £50,000 a year, you can become a member of the Conservatives' leaders group of donors in which you get four private off-the-record meetings with the Prime Minister and, and various other Cabinet Ministers and selected donors and that's all completely secret. So that's a huge amount of influence for, for not very much money. What could we do about it? Well, one thing to take the money out of politics will be, quite straightforwardly, to limit the maximum donation. Maybe, say, £10,000 is the suggestion I make in the book. That would go some way. The other thing that you could do is the thing that people never want to talk about, which is increase the role of the state in the funding of political parties. One easy way of doing that would be to match fund small donations. So if you said, like, every donation under £500 of a political party registers, the state will match fund it. That would increase the amount of small donations, small money in funding a political party, and, like, kind of reduce the reliance on big money. And, the same, and there's loads of other things we could do. We could make joining political party tax deductible. So there's actually quite, quite straightforward things that other people have done too. We don't need to do what the British government seems to talk about all the time, which is make a world beating something. We can just do what other countries are doing. You know, we can, we can cherry pick from lots of other countries and make something that worked for Britain. But of course, the big but is that that requires political will. And so far, 
Boris Johnson has really committed to only one major change in electoral law. And he made this point not just only within a week of winning the 2019 general election with his, quote, stonking majority. Uh, he said that what, they were going, what, he, what he was going to do was to introduce mandatory voter ID for, for voting in British elections. And that's solving a problem that doesn't exist. You know, numerous studies, I think there was something, there was less than 10 instances of voter impersonation during the 2017 general election. I haven't seen the data, I haven't seen the data for 2019, but I imagine it's very similar. This is, that's addressing a problem that doesn't exist. It gets a good headline. It keys in with the kind of narrative you're getting in America about mass voter fraud. But actually, there's no evidence of voter fraud. And the kind of thing I'm writing about in my book, it's not about the, the influence that's going on, the kind of the pressure that's going on to voters. isn't happening in the ballot booth, and it's not happening in the, on your way into the ballot booth. It's happening outside. It's happening in their lives. And that's where we've got no, almost no regulation, and the government shows no desire to, to bring in any. Now, if you build it, they will come. The government has announced a once-in-generation transformation of planning law in England. The new system will see the traditional method of gaining planning permission on a case-by-case basis scrapped in favour of classifying land into three types of zones, growth, renewal or protection. In growth areas, planning permission will automatically be granted if proposals meet certain criteria. This, we are told, will speed things up. Default local plans take councils seven years to put together. Whereas under this new system, simplified housing plans can be prepared within 30 months. Sounds great, but the plans have already been heavily criticised for their lack of democratic oversight and the potential for a new generation of fast and substandard housing to be built. Nina, uh, the aim of the government's proposals is to streamline the process of building houses. What is the impact going to be when local people are shut out of that process? Well, there is going to be hell to pay. Um, I mean... The I'm not a planning expert, but looking at the white paper, one of the things that really stuck in my mind was that they want to get rid of Section 106. And what that is, is that when the council allows developers to build, um, you know, 100 flats, the developer as a quid pro quo has to do 10 affordable homes or some kind of park or something for the local community. And I think what is really absent is the white paper is that and although it gets rid of section 106, there is nothing to replace it. So the insinuation then is that if you have nothing that's a community-led effort or something to look for social housing, you're very quickly going to shut people out. And we know that that is going to have very negative impact and not going to go down well with the local community. The, the man fronting these plans is your friend of mine, Robert Jenry, uh, the man who was about to save Richard Desmond millions of pounds by overriding a planning decision made in Tower Hamilton and had to reverse his decision. Is this is this a good is this a good face to uh, to front these plans? Do you think perhaps? <laughs> I mean, talking about cash for favor scandals. I mean, Peter Peter has even written about this whole thing and said how this is you know indicative of the state of British politics right now. But is he the right man? I mean, is Donald Trump? <laughs> the right man to lead uh, an inquiry into sexual harassment come on this is literally the guy who was caught up in the scandal about what was it a month ago you can see why from the get-go he's not going to inspire much trust it's a funny way to address the trust deficit in british politics isn't it because even 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 our government will admit that we have a trust issue and this seems to be you know cutting people out of decisions like this seems to be a strange way of going about it It's a totally strange way to go about it. And I think it actually touches upon what Peter just mentioned when he was talking about 
um, you know, this new kind of way in which politics is financed and politics is fought. If everything goes in the name of winning, you know, you can break any rules, you can sidestep any regulation, you don't have to get community buy-in, you're just like, we're winning at any cost, then a huge consequence of that is a decline in public trust, which ultimately affects everyone on the political spectrum, you know, whether you're on the right or the left. So I think the entire, given that this government is taking that kind of approach where anything goes in order to win, um, that is inevitably, inevitably going to lead to a decline in trust in society between the governors and the governed. And ultimately, that's a lose-lose situation for everyone, no matter what side of the spectrum you sit in. Arthur, um, we do have a housing crisis in the UK. Um, this seems to be a kind of a 1980s solution to a 21st century problem. You know, the free market is going to take care of it. Do you, th you know, from what you've read, do you think that uh, major deregulation of planning is likely to lead to more affordable houses? I mean, Shelter has said that social housing could face extinction if the Section 106 payments are removed. Yeah, well, I think one of the things is obviously to remember that distinction between affordable and social housing. And, and social housing clearly is, is, is what is provided to those people who aren't otherwise able to, to access housing. And there isn't enough of it. And as, and as has been said, it's going to fall off a cliff. Now, the definition of affordable housing is, is, is always changing, but often... Uh, what is classed as affordable housing is affordable only to already quite wealthy people. And you remember the whole help to buy scheme that included mm. some really quite expensive houses being built. But of course, one of the reasons why that was happening was because that was your core Tory demographic of aspirational middle class, uh, perhaps young families moving up the property ladder. So I think when we look at this new policy, We've got to ask ourselves, well, what's the political advantage that the Tories see here? And I think it is is targeting their own uh, sort of growth demographic, which will be those people sort of coming into voting Tory and who want to be climbing up the housing ladder rather than those in, in sort of um, hardest need of housing. What's going to happen if you find yourself in a growth area? where there's no democratic input at all. I mean, I've, I've you know, I had mild involvement in the planning system as it stands, and it's already a nightmare. If you find your area suddenly re reclassed as growth and there's no input whatsoever, I mean, what's that going to mean for people with existing properties or existing communities? Well, I suppose it means that, you know, a large, powerful um, housing developer will throw up a lot of properties and one or two people will make huge sums of money and the rest of us will, you know, wonder what happened. I mean, I think it is this thing of, of taking away the sort of uh, democratic input. And it's very easy for people to caricature the planning system as dysfunctional and go on about how many years it takes. And one can understand the problems with that. But part of that is the ability for an individual to look up a planning application, to comment on it, to object to it, to go to the meetings and that is part of local democracy. It's part of accountability. And it's in a way connected with some of the things that Peter was talking about earlier on. Um, and if you withdraw that and basically say, well, there's an overriding need here. So we're going to allow large corporate interests just to do what they want to do. Clearly, uh, the individual loses those rights overnight. 
Mm. Peter, open democracy has been all over this planning story. Uh, you yourself wrote a very comprehensive piece about how the Conservatives had received £11 million from the building industry since Johnson became Prime Minister. And one of them was £75,000 from the West Ham owner David Sullivan uh, when Johnson was London Mary waved through West Ham's Olympic Stadium deal, which has subsequently cost the taxpayers over £300 million. It's very cosy, isn't it? Yeah, I actually think this is... You know, if you want to think about the role of money in politics in terms of like actually being quite transactional, and often it's not in British politics. You know, donors can give money for lots of reasons that aren't nakedly transactional. Actually, I think property developers is one of the one of the most transactional, and often it happens at local areas. So, you know, property developers often will give money to local MPs in a certain area, who will then turn around and support property developers' proposed developments. There's a kind of series. You know, I think the reliance of uh, particularly is really Conservative Party on property donation and money from property developers has it does really warp the kind of um, the, the the kind of this pull that I think property don property developers can have on Conservative Party politics and policies and this really is a developer's manifesto to be honest which I completely agree with Arthur in terms of the democratic aspect of it it takes you know it's it's essentially boils down to taking power away from democratically elected representatives and handing it to private developers. And it's not just one or two private developers who, who give money to political, uh, the politics of conservatives, really. It's, in my analysis over the last year, it was about 125 separate developers or companies. So this is a lot of developers who have an interest in this. And it's a, it's a part of a policy that is very open to, uh, is very open to political involvement and political manipulation. You know, I, I wrote a story as well about Robert Jenrick calling in uh, planning applications for political for, that happen to come in from uh, prominent Conservative Party donors too. But this manifesto, this proposal, really actually would give property developers, I think, very much exactly what they would want, which is a huge free reign without oversight from local government. There was another quite a prescient piece on. Um on Open Democracy by Laurie McFarland in July that pretty much accurately predicted these ideas. Well, it, it, Laurie had quite a good analysis of, of you know, the myths around the housing, housing crisis. It's not because we don't build enough. It's uh, entirely other reasons, isn't it? What, what's really happening there? Yeah, Laurie has written really cogently on this. And what he was basically arguing was that we have this kind of story in Britain about that the problem in our housing market is that there isn't enough supply of houses. You know, there's not enough houses being built and they're not being built because of these really, really cumbersome old planning regulations. And, you know, the planning system is a complicated beast. As a journalist, I've always found it, you know, I'm certainly no expert in it, but I've had to deal with it occasionally. Um, but what Laurie's real argument was that actually the, the, the issue is less, isn't really one of supply, it's one of demand. And if you think about it, you know, that in over the last 30, 40 years, since really since the, the, the right to buy scheme came in for council housing or Margaret Thatcher, houses have become where we put our value, we've put a stock of value into houses. You know, unlike a lot of continental countries, rent is, our rent, renters' rights in Britain are, very, are, are not strong. There's very little fixity of tenure and things like that. And house prices have become a bellwether for almost anyone who owns a house. A house the house has become their store of value. It's your pension, it's whatever else. And nobody wants to see anything happen that will change the value of houses. And that's fed into this... Uh, into the housing bubble. The housing bubble is, is really driven by demand side aspects rather than supply. And in taking out, um, you know, in some ways, it's, it's, I've always found it fascinating to look at British housing because British housing now looks like Irish housing, which is a disaster. And Ireland never really had a nationalized house building service. What we always did was incentivize builders to build houses. That's what Britain's done in the last 30 years. And what that has, it, it, it is a policy that 
it never works and it isn't working in Britain either. And it's really interesting to see, though, as well, and, and Laurie wrote about this, it's fascinating actually reading Laurie's pieces from a few months ago because he, he, uh, he kind of uh, kind of chanced upon a paper written by Policy Exchange, which kind of brings us back to my work on dark money and politics, which is a think tank set up around Michael Gove, really, in the early 2000s, conservative think tank funded by Michael Ashcroft and many others. And they had a policy, policy exchange uh, published a paper a while back suggesting that really we should just get rid of the planning system as it is and zone land is either development land or non-development land. If non-development land you can barely touch it, if it's development land you can do whatever you want on it. And the guy who wrote that uh, policy paper, a guy called Jack Airy, is just so happens to now be the Prime Minister's special advisor on housing. Oh, what a cheery thought, I bet you can guess what those zones would be and where they would generally vote. Finally, last week's apocalyptic scenes of a massive explosion in the port of Beirut were like something out of a disaster movie. The explosion of 2,750 tonnes of ammonium nitrate, which had been stored in the port for over six years, by whom and why is still contested, killed 158 people, injured 6,000 more and left 300,000 people homeless. It has plunged Lebanon into chaos. The government has resigned, admitting that corruption is bigger than the state itself. Francis Emmanuel Macron made a remarkable venture into the crowds, promising reform from outside and questioned being asked about Hezbollah's role as a state within a state. Arthur, you wrote a fantastic piece for this for the article website, which we will uh, we'll post online. What do, you, what do we know about the explosion? What do, we, what do we know about what happened and why it happened? So the story goes back to a cargo ship which left Georgia with a cargo of ammonium nitrate, which of course can be used for all kinds of legitimate purposes, such as uh, fertilizer and and even industrial explosives and and this wasn't military grade stuff and that cargo was headed for Africa but the ship uh, left Georgia in the Black Sea got into difficulties near Lebanon and came ashore and then the cargo was unloaded and left in a warehouse and this was uh, back in 2013 and then for years People in the customs authorities in Lebanon were worried about this unsafe uh, warehouse full of ammonium nitrate and kept requesting that something be done with it. And they were basically ignored. And I think they were ignored. People who know Lebanon well will, will point to the fact that it's, it's a very corrupt place. It's a place where a lot of kind of state institutions have become quite degraded. And ultimately, it wasn't in anyone's interest to take this problem seriously. And then, of course, tragically, this is a volatile substance. Apparently, some people were doing welding nearby and it ignited and we've seen this devastating explosion. So ultimately, it was a set of sort of accidental circumstances, but circumstances that reflect a very kind of degraded, rather cynical and and corrupt state, which is where Lebanon has ended up. And Hezbollah does play an outsized role in Lebanon still and there was an awful lot of talk that they were somehow involved in the uh, the, the presence of this ammonium nitrate that it could have been used and would have been used as, as armament is that credible is there anything behind that well I think to understand this you have to understand the difference between what Hezbollah means to people outside Lebanon generally and what it means to people there so Often people in the West, in Europe, North America, you say Hezbollah and you think of a terrorist organization and that's a completely legitimate description. They've, they've carried out terror attacks around the place. 
But in Lebanon, Hezbollah is also a mainstream political movement with very widespread support. And one of the things that uh, falls under Hezbollah's influence is the ports of entry. So famously, they've had control of Beirut's airport for years, but they've also got control of the, the maritime port. And so I think quite a lot of people have made this connection, the fact that, that this stuff can be used for explosives, the fact that Hezbollah has control of the port, and people have jumped to a conclusion that Hezbollah deliberately sort of kept that stuff there, perhaps they were going to use it to make bombs and so on. I don't buy that, not not because I'm in any way defending Hezbollah, but one, it's not military-grade um, ammonium nitrate, so it would be an odd thing to do. Secondly, the history of it is very clear that this, this stuff came because the ship got into difficulty, not because it was brought in as a as a cargo that was imported. So I think Hezbollah has a responsibility as a major political actor in Lebanon and has been part of the general climate of kind of decay and corruption, which allowed this stuff to be left there for years. But I don't think there's a conspiracy here about the specific uh, ammonium nitrate. Nina, uh, Donald Trump was quick to weigh in uh, with his instant analysis, claiming that his generals had told him the explosion was caused by a bomb of some kind, which Arthur has just explained is not very likely. With your disinformation hat on, what's been being said about this enormous disaster? I mean, we immediately saw people claiming or or putting responsibility on all of their their favourite culprits. What's going on in the world of disinformation around this? Absolutely. It's just... Yet another example how any event in um, an information ecosystem, which is increasingly distorted and full of disinformation, can be manipulated to sort whatever narrative you please. So some of the rounds that have been happening in terms of disinformation is that this is actually a U.S. or Israeli-led attack on Hezbollah and that this was a Hezbollah arms kind of base and that it was the Israelis or the Americans went in and blew it up to to hurt Hezbollah. Um, That has been circulating around far-right extremist networks. It's also been pushed or touted amongst the increasingly large community in the United States known as QAnon. QAnon is obviously this movement that was founded in 2017, which believes that Donald Trump is secretly waging a war against an elite cabal of pedophiles. So QAnon um, is now saying that this was an attack, weapons attack by Trump. There's other conspiracies saying that this was a nuclear attack. And a lot of the kind of initial photos and videos of the blast were circulated seconds after it happened on social media with the suggestion that this was some kind of nuclear or atomic blast. It's astonishing because, uh, you know, the, the, the proliferation of instant arms experts, nuclear physicists, experts on ballistic weaponry that appear on Twitter. I don't know why we, we train them uh, nationally. We should just go on Twitter. That All the expertise is there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. This is, again, another kind of lesson about, you know, our information ecosystem and the massive effects of the democratization uh, that technology has brought us in terms of anyone being able to reach out and you know put their thoughts into the ether, which has good things but also bad things. And uh, one very bad manifestation of this is in, in situations like this, how seconds after um, it happens, you, you basically have everyone taking their hot take and pretending to be experts in bomb blasts. So there you go. Arthur, finally, uh, Emmanuel Macron appeared in the crowds, uh, promising that French aid would not fall into corrupt hands and that there needed to be a new politi- political initiative. What, 
What's he playing at? What's going on there? Well, France has historically a very strong relationship with Lebanon. Originally, they were the colonial power, and then they have this major sort of ongoing relationship with a lot of Lebanese politicians, and notably Lebanon's Christian community, which is still the largest Christian community in the Middle East. So France, France has a, a big role to play there. But perhaps one of the challenges that Lebanon faces is that it has always been uh, a sort of playground for powerful external powers. So you've had the Europeans, you've got Iran, which, which has a lot of influence over the Shia community in Lebanon. You, the Gulf countries tend to have a lot of influence over the Sunni Muslim community. And then, of course, you've also got the presence of a huge Palestinian refugee population, which then affects Lebanon's relations with Israel, very troubled relations. So Lebanon is a country, I think it's half the size of Wales, but seems to have the sort of complexity of a huge, complex, multi-ethnic state. And ultimately, if you're trying to understand how Lebanon is going to get out of this crisis, it needs all those powers that seek to intervene and sort of pull the strings in Lebanon to agree that actually it's the interests of the Lebanese people that need to come first, rather than thinking, well, how does this help my faction within Lebanon get ahead? And hitherto, that has tended to be the way that people have approached Lebanon. Maybe this tragedy and the realisation that its political system has failed means that people are prepared to go beyond that. I think, you know, to give credit to Macron, I don't think he's acting in the interests of only one faction within Lebanon. I think he does... Genuinely, he's moved beyond the traditional French approach. And I think we need the other regional powers to understand that that's the only way they can really help the country. We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. What books, television, music or other things are taking their minds off the madness of the outside world this week? Arthur Snell, what's your great distraction? Well, I'd love to say that, you know, I'm reading some really uh, sort of high-flown bit of literature or, you know, consuming a um, sophisticated documentary or something. But to be honest with you, in this heat, I think the thing that is absolutely the best thing is to go and swim in some cold water. (laughs) I had an absolutely lovely time swimming in the River Wye over the weekend, and I'm already dreaming of the next dip. So that's what I'm doing. Oh, no, we've finally done our wild swimming piece. We are the Guardian. Wild swimming on every other page. (laughs) <laughs> Peter Gagan, special guest. What's your escape route at the moment? Well, I've spent the last week plugging a book, so I haven't had that much time to escape <laughs> anything else. But I, I have, uh, I have just picked up a couple of Desmond Bagley novels. I like a bit of a thriller for a summer, uh-huh. and I'm kind of that's that's where I think I'm going to be escaping into. It's. Not, it's very much in my wheelhouse too. But I did just recently finish Baron Noir, which is a French political drama on. Um, it's on Amazon Prime and I did really enjoy that although that really was a busman's holiday so yeah so basically you you unwind from exploring the world of dark money and dirty politics by reading thrillers about dark money dirty politics and similar <laughs> something like that fair enough I suppose Nina what's your escape Reese? Have you have you been reading about uh, electronic misinformation to take your mind off electronic misinformation <laughs> something along those lines and also keeping in 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 line with Peter's interest in the theme of of this pod, really. I've been watching the BBC documentary series, The Rise of the Murdoch Empire. Mm. Very interesting. It's only three or four episodes. Um, I felt like it could have 
been drawn out much longer than that. And obviously, I massively think it's fascinating how he plays his children off of each other, given that succession, the TV yes. show is meant to be based on the Murdoch family. Yes. Who's Kendall and who's Roman, though? I think James is Kendall. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I also that. I also think there's a bit of there's a bit of uh, Tom in uh, Matthew Freud. You can't you can't make a Tom look without a Freud egg. <laughs> my uh, my my escape route. I'm going to lower the tone enormously. Mine is the BBC Four documentary Everything: The Real Thing Story. BBC Four has been playing an absolute blinder with uh, Black British music over the past few weeks, and the documentary about the great Liverpool funk band, The Real Thing, that was on last week and is still on iPlay. It's absolutely fantastic. I had no idea that they spent so much time with the Beatles and how much the Beatles held them in awe. I had no idea that uh, at the end of the seventies they made an album called Four from Eight, which was essentially there, Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Except set in Liverpool. Absolutely incredible thing, and you should you should watch it. It is uh, it is culture and society, but also some of the best music you'll hear. Can you feel the force? You to me are everything. What more could you possibly wish for? And that is the end of this week's bunker. Thank you to our special guest, Peter Gagan. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And democracy for sale, dark money and dirty politics available now in a bookshop near you because it's the internet and all bookshops are near you right now. Thank you also to our panellists, Nina Schick. <laughs> Thank you. And Arthur Snell. Thanks for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and, of course, the full-length show like this, this time next week. Don't forget, you can back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon or Patreon. We've never quite worked out how to pronounce it. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. If you back us, you'll get a shout-out on the show. And here are some shout-outs now. Hello, and many thanks from me to Paul Barnes, David Trott, Matthew Lagden, Tom Cleaver, and Gavin Hogg. And this is Arthur, and best wishes from me to Keith Tarran, Darren Davalli, Louisa Llewellyn, Jan Kapinski, and David Clarsen, who I think is an old friend of mine. So if it is that, David, great to see you. Thanks, David. Yet more dark money in politics, <laughs> yet more backscratching. And finally, thanks to me to Phil Walker, Tim, Rod Thorpe, Matthew Ames, and Lucienne Kenny. Stay safe, and we'll see you all next week. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Arthur Snell and Nina Schick. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.